Marini's Media. Totally football show today. Is time up on Tyneside? Is Ashley actually leaving Newcastle? Will Saudi Arabia take it off his hands, which they have some practice at? We count down to the new owners in the Northeast. We also journey back to the mid 90s. Nice waistcoat, bro. For Champions League Chapter 5, 1996 97. There's also the quiz as Jack Lang takes on Emma Saunders and Craze Boffin Duncan Alexander puts a certain England semi-final through his flip-reverse machine. It's all coming up in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. John Henley there with the traffic news in your region as we put the pedal to the floor with a brand new Totally. We're joined by Duncan Alexander. Hi, James. Hi to you, Duncan. James Horncastle's also there. Good day to you. Right, James Horncastle in the attic at his in-laws. Raphael Honigstein joining us on the line as well. Hello, James. Hello to you, Rafa. Hey, boys of summer, boys of summer might be better 96, 97. We'll, we'll talk about all that later on. Duncan, you've been feeling a bit peaky this week. Yeah, a little bit, yeah, which normally, you know, wouldn't have concerned me, but in these different times. But yeah, mm. I'm OK now, so so don't worry. Well, that's good. Loads to discuss uh, in today's show, uh, not least the whole Italy-Germany friction that uh, was the storyline almost of the 96, 97 season. But let's begin with the news from the North East with talk of a deposit being paid by a consortium led again by Amanda Staveley, but funded predominantly by Saudi Arabia's state investment fund. And uh, Crown Prince Yasser al-Ramayan, the governor of the uh, public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, expected to become Newcastle chairman. A, a reaction to this has been somewhat mixed. Faustino Sprillia saying, or expressing his excitement, Mike actually saw fans as just barcodes. Hopefully that will end soon. This team is for lovers, not just for merchandisers, says Faustino. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, someone who loves merchandising his own brand of condoms. Um, so, yeah, if if he was as excited as you suggested, then, James, the, the prospect of uh, Mike Ashley uh, leaving, then God knows what he got up to next. I understand what you're saying, but I'm going to move on to Paul Hayward, who says Newcastle fans are free to be delighted, but they better be ready for a discussion about women's right campaigners being locked up. Yemen, uh, Khashoggi, executions. Saudi sovereign wealth is everywhere, but let's not hide from reality. Uh, how much that's going to be a factor in most Newcastle fans' reaction, I guess, is going to be conditioned by how long they've been uh, waiting for Mike Ashley to, to step aside. If you were to compile a list of the Premier League's worst owners or least popular owners, where would Ashley go in in that kind of top 10? I think Newcastle are unusual in the sense that you can have a not ideal owner at an Arsenal or Manchester United, but they're, you know, they might have a few years out of the Champions League, but it's not going to put them into dire straits. And then you have the, the flip side, you have teams like Blackpool, where the owners, the Oysters, basically took out all the money they got from coming into the Premier League and gave it to themselves, which is very charitable. Um, and then obviously t- clubs like Portsmouth, where they ha- went through a succession of ridiculously bad 
mad owners. Newcastle somewhere in between where they have actually gone down a couple of times, um, but they're big enough and strong enough to kind of bounce back. Um, and I think obviously with this investment, you know, they've got the potential to to join the, the biggest clubs in the country. Yeah, I mean, they will probably be, the new owners will probably be good owners for Newcastle and probably even good new owners for Newcastle, the city, if they, uh, as we are led to believe, will invest in uh, regeneration of parts of Tyneside, etc. But of course, there are other considerations and I think it's not an easy, easy call to make. There is always the excuse to say, well, there is a lot of Saudi Arabia money in London and in other places in the UK anyway. Why should we point the finger at Newcastle United? But then football does put itself on a, often a moral pedestal and therefore should live with a bit of more scrutiny. Yeah, and I, th I think the issue being that the benefits of sport washing in inverted commas and to what extent this is not only investment by but a, a means for them to sweep certain things under the carpet well the deal hasn't uh, actually been finalized yet and of course we've seen uh, takeover bids fail uh, often at the last minute with Newcastle before I think it's interesting because you almost feel that Saudi Arabia will get more scrutiny now certainly in, in some sections of the media now that th this deal is is going through or will will be will be going through. So I don't know how effective this really is as a as a mechanism. Yes, they might have now lots of angry Newcastle fans on Twitter um, writing um, you know angry replies to journalists who write pieces about human rights abuse, etc. But that's not really, I think, a critical mass when it comes to changing the perception. And I think it might actually put Saudi Arabia under the spotlight in a way that it did with Abu Dhabi to a certain extent which they might actually find a little bit uncomfortable going forward. One other minor thing as well is that um, this September would have been the 8th anniversary of Alan Pardew getting his 8 year contract from Mike Ashley so he's managed to uh, if he does go to leave the club before the, the momentous occasion Right, extraordinary extraordinary. Alright well more on that takeover as and when uh, let's quickly get a couple of uh, reactions from listeners. Uh, Michael Burrell coming back to us on one of the questions in our last edition of the quiz when we asked which England player holds the record for most caps by an outfield player and gave the answer as Wayne Rooney. Michael Burrell says, uh, not sure how Rachel Yankee would feel about being so overlooked. Michael, you're absolutely right. We should have specified, although it isn't actually Rachel Yankee who has their record uh, for male and female footballers. Abby Patterson, producer of the offside rule, coming back with Farrell Williams, of course, who is currently the most capped England player. David Walker, meanwhile, uh, responds to Matt Davis-Adams talking about uh, Ayun Dizou, which is so not how you pronounce that. The former Wigan Pompey player, you know the one, who goes on to become a police forensic detective. Dizou had a medical degree before he even uh, became a professional footballer. It was only meant to be a brief sojourn in, in the sport, he, he later explained. But uh, Matt uh, helpfully suggesting that we have a topic of post-football careers uh, regarding which uh, some people have been writing in. Uh, you know the kind of thing. Klaus Ingerson, for example, who, uh, after playing for Sheffield Wednesday, went back to Sweden and became a lumberjack. We'll have more extraordinary examples of post-football careers in Monday's show. Unless there's anything, Duncan, Rafa, James, you'd like to throw in now? Well, I think Tim Visa becoming a professional wrestler is is up there with with the most bizarre choices. Uh, Has I he actually had a bout one. by now? I, I'm not sure he's had a professional bout just yet, but I think they call it a house show, James. Mm. Just when you sort of go on on trial runs and stuff. 
I, I, I'm led to believe that's what it means. Is that what a house show is? Good. I mean, I think my personal favourite is Gavin Peacock, um, mm. who who transferred from being a footballer into he's now a uh, a pastor in Canada. Um, and he has a, a quite stern Twitter feed. I just had a quick look. His, one of his latest tweets ends with, it is finished on the cross, which is unusual because most of his assists came from three balls. So it um, shows how it's <laughs> changed in later life. Can I just ask, what was he saying is finished? Presumably. It was about it was Easter. So Civilisation? Um, yeah, no, I was wondering if it was some kind of... Uh, Revelations type. Uh... Well, it, the whole tweet is Satan slain, satisfied wrath, sinners redeemed, salvation won, the saviour glorified. But brilliant. You know. Okay, That's some uh, different content there from Gavin Peacock. As I say, more of the post football careers in Monday's show because right now, listener, it's quiz time. We are down to the last three quarterfinal places in the intertotally and champing at the bit, ready to battle for theirs are Emma Saunders and Jack Lang. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Into Totally Cup. Alvaro's made it. Pat Nevin too. And Jules and James Horncastle and Daniel Storey. Raffer and Duncan, not so much. But what surprises are in store today? Well, let's meet our latest contenders. Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did. Looking like a two survivor. Up first. She floats like a butterfly and stings like a hornet. All the way from far back 1992, the voice of Vicarage Road, Emma Sandino Saunders. Woo, Emma. What an introduction. Absolutely feisty. Uh, Elton, of course, is he, uh, is he aware that you're using his music as your theme intro? I'm sure he won't have a problem with it, especially if I smash this out the park. Right. Did you think this fool could never win? Look at me, I'm coming back again. How how telling will those words prove? Let's meet your opponent. And her opponent, a man so handsome he could get away with two moustaches simultaneously, all the way from the Brazilian favelas via the Cornish coast. He is Jack Eloco Langa. Jack, Osmotaches, sensational. Thank you. Yeah, thought I'd get the music right at least. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to an exciting and fair quiz today. Two rounds, of course, the first of which is your specialist subjects. What have you gone for, Jack? Brazil at the 2014 World Cup, which I'm sure will annoy Michael and Daniel. Right. Already gets my vote for that very reason. Emma, what about you? Uh, I've gone for the same year. So it's the Watford 2014-15 promotional season. I picked it because a lot happened, but in hindsight, I'm not sure that's going to be a good thing, is it? We'll find out as we begin the specialist round with you, Emma Saunders. Question one. Watford famously had four managers in that 2014-15 season. Can you name them in chronological order? I can. It began with Beppe Sinino, the Italian. He was then succeeded by uh, Oscar Garcia, who then had to stand down uh, on advice from doctors. He was replaced um, for a very short period of about a week by Billy McKinley. uh, And then in came to deliver the promotion, Slavisha Jakanovic. Correct. I wonder how you'll fare on question two then, which is, which of those four managed the fewest games? Oh, um, 
Well, it depends because I think Oscar only actually oversaw one game, that Charlton game, but Billy McKinley did two. So I'm going to go Garcia because he was only in the dugout for one, whereas Billy McKinley definitely oversaw two. Yes, that is correct. Garcia hospitalised after his first game, meaning he managed even fewer matches than Billy McKinley's two. Moving on to question three then, Emma. Watford won 5-0 and 7-2 in consecutive weeks at Vicarage Road that season. Which two teams did they beat to achieve those results? 7-2 was Blackpool. Oh my God, the 5-0. Um, I've got Fulham was away. I think, I think it was Charlton at home. Yeah, I'm going to go Char- Charlton followed by Blackpool. You are correct. Boom. Question four, Emma. Where were the Watford players when they discovered that they had won promotion thanks to Borough getting beaten by Fulham 4-3? They were on the south coast at the Amex Stadium having beaten Brighton 2-0. Specifically, uh, we have them on the team bus returning from Brighton, but I think we'll accept that answer. Question five, and this for a perfect score in the specialist knowledge round. Which three players who made league appearances for Watford that season are still at the club? Right. Um, Troy Deeney. Uh, Herelio Gomez. Oh, who would the third one be? Still at the club now. Uh, Craig Cathcart is correct Emma outstanding that's five out of five how do you feel yeah I'll take that certainly and I think Elton uh, would be pleased with my efforts so far as I'm very much still standing nicely done Jack let's see how you come back at the Reg Dwight attack as we ask you questions about Brazil at the 2014 World Cup are you ready Ready as I'll ever be, James. Question one. Which team is missing from this list of opponents that Brazil faced at the tournament? Germany, Croatia, Netherlands, Cameroon, Chile and Colombia. Mexico. Correct. Question two. Which Colombia defender need Neymar in the back, fracturing a vertebra and putting him out of the semi-final? Juan Zuniga. Is correct. Question three. Who scored Brazil's first goal of the tournament and who scored their last? Uh, Their first was Neymar and the last was Oscar. Is correct. Question four. Neymar and Thiago Silva were absent from the semi-final against Germany. Which two players replaced them? Uh, Neymar was replaced by Bernard and Thiago Silva was replaced by Dante. He's good. Question five, then, for the perfect score in this specialist round. Four of the starting 11 from the 7-1 defeat against Germany never played for Brazil again after this World Cup. Who were those four players? Uh, Bernard, Fred, uh, Julio Cesar, and... uh, Is it Hulk? Jack, you've just entered your own personal circle of hell because the answer was Dante. So you've scored four out of five. Very respectable, but not quite as respectable as Emma Saunders' five out of five. Yeah, comeback trail needed here. 
Mm, all right. Well, general knowledge round awaits. Who knows what twists and turns that will feature? Looking forward to seeing both of you later on. Wow, Emma with five out of five. Jack, so close to matching her. And of course, James, you're following this with keen interest because you're going to be facing the winner. Yes, but you have to back yourself, James. I wake up every day thinking I'm I'm the best person in this quiz, and that's just that's just the way you know. If 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 you concede anything in this, if you give an inch, um, people will take it. So you, you just have to believe your own hype. That's um, and I'm I'm the hype man. I'm I'm Horncastle's hype man. Looking forward to your quarterfinal appearance. A quick word on movies. Many thanks to everyone who wrote in about football films this week. Of course, we were going to watch The Meme Machine, but then I did. And I have to say, it broke me. It broke me. Well, I, I wish can't... someone had told me this. Did you watch it? I actually watched it? Yeah, I watched it. <laughs> I in the told midst everyone. of my fever. You didn't. I didn't get the message. Uh, what, what did you think, Duncan, briefly? To, well, to be honest, it broke me as well. So I yeah. think yeah. It's worse. It's worse than United Passions, I would say. Well, it's very redolent of that kind of turn of the century, like kind of Vinnie Jones, Guy Ritchie kind of vibe, isn't it? There's yeah. there's this statutory trance song three quarters of the way through. It's just, yeah. it's it's templated and it, yeah, it broke me completely. Um, the worst thing, and I think this was the thing that really, really stung, was uh, one of the least appealing characters in this is a prison governor who's played by David Hemmings, who it was an icon of kind of 60s cool in Antonioni's blow up. Um, yeah. To go from that to this, it was just such a tragic career arc that yeah. really, I, I couldn't deal with anything after that. Is it, is it worse than going from Channel 4 to Bravo? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Listen, take a second. I've got to... <laughs> just, um... <laughs> anyway... <laughs> anyway, so now the thing was, then I went, okay, well, we'll watch when Saturday comes. Manny Hawke says, ah, it's a piece of cinematic genius. But immediately, immediately, we get a, a response from the man who wrote Green Street, Doogie really? Brimson. Yeah. He says, oh, Christ, when Saturday comes is bloody awful. And that's coming from the bloke responsible for Green Street, writes Doogie. So at this point, I thought, well, it, it, it really dawned on me that football movies are almost universally terrible. There are various theories as to why we can talk about them another time. But rather than continue to riff on the rubbishness, let's just cut to the chase. Most are really bad. Uh, is there a football movie that you like, Rafa, James? Well, Maradona um, is, is absolutely mm. superb. Um, but you mean a fictional one? or? Well, that, that's what we've been looking at, but yes. I mean, there's L'Uomo in Pew by uh, Sorrentino, which I'm sure you can get a subtitled uh, copy of that. That's, that's excellent on the kind of difficulties of coming to terms with you know, what to do next after football. All right, mm. topical. There's the German classic Mani der Libero. Some listeners might be familiar with it. There's, there's a half-fictionized... How would you bizarre, translate that, Rafa? Uh, Mani the Sweeper. And there's okay. a, a very strange Franz Beckenbauer film where he is, he is half-fictionalized. So they use real footage from Bayern games, I think from the 1971-72 season, or 72-73 but then there's a whole superimposed story about him having issues with his family and, uh, you know, and kind of having a conflict with a coach. It's a very, very strange, strange piece of filmmaking. 
But I think you hit on the key thing there in that they use actual footage because that is essentially what lets down all football films is that football's impossible to film fictionally. It just, people can't do it. And even if they get ex-pros and they're usually old as we saw um, in Escape to Victory. So, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of focus on Michael Sheen um, and his performance as Chris Tarrant in the quiz at the weekend. But, you know, he was excellent as Brian Clough in the, in the Damned United. And I think that, you know, that was fictionalised enough um, that it was actually a worth watching, whereas these kind of, you know, let's try and recreate football, it just doesn't work. I must say I really enjoyed the English game. It was a little bit twee and, and very nice, the new Netflix series. don't know if you've seen it, but it's it's kind of enjoyable. And I think the enjoyable thing about it, there's not enough football in it, um, bizarrely. Uh, there's uh, a lot of class war and relationship issues and Victorian Britain and so on. But the football sh- scenes are quite good because... You know, this is football from the late 19th century and you don't expect it to look like today's football. That's why the sort of the artificial sensation of it not quite working isn't really there. Uh, and it feels it feels a lot more real even without uh, having goal nets and this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's good. Right. The English game. Uh, Gary Webster and Keith, many thanks to you for your suggestion of Shaolin Soccer, which I do intend to watch at some point. For now, though, let's park all that football and film stuff because it's Champions League time. We're using the current pause to tell the story of the premier European club competition, the weird and wonderful early years. And up next, it's Chapter 5, 1996-97. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Tall Swedish strikers with little ponytails, special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegambleware.org. Hey, listeners, or as they say on the continent, ascoltatori, or hura. If you've always wanted to speak German or Italian or French or Spanish, but didn't think you had the time to attend a language class, well, this might just be the perfect time. Why not get on board with Babbel and have a language class attend you? Babbel brings language classes into the 21st century with online courses designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks and daily 10 to 15 minute lessons. You learn through interactive dialogues and real-life conversations why Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and your accent. And whether you're using a desktop, mobile or tablet, Babbel will keep your progress synced across all devices. Right now, Babbel is offering Totally listeners six months for free when you purchase a six-month subscription to one of their courses. Just head to babbel.co.uk slash play and enter the code FOOTBALL for the checkout. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot co.uk slash play and the promo code FOOTBALL. Babbel, learn a new language and make it your own. Spotify, smart speaker, and podcast platforms everywhere. This is the Totally Bubble Show from Muddy Knees Media. Summer 1996, a good time to be German. Euro 96 had just seen football come home for a visit where the Germans, after triumphing over England in the semi finals when Gascoigne's leg wasn't quite long enough, then went on to beat the Czech Republic and win a final at Wembley after 30 years of their own hurt. Beerhoff brace, and as their commentator probably said, they think it's Oliver, it is now. 
The Teutonic triumph was to continue in the football season that was just getting underway, with German sides winning both the UEFA Cup and the Champions League, and beating Italian teams in the finals of both, of course. Autumn 1996 then, and as the season began, what else was going on? The Spice Girls were off dominating Europe with their zig-a-zig R's. Everywhere indeed, except Germany, where Die Totenhusen were number one with Zene Kleiner Jägermeister. Zehn kleine Jägermeister rauchten einen Joint. Den einen hatte zum Gehauen, da waren's nur noch neun. Good times. Independence Day was the big smash in the cinema. Audiences flocking to see the aliens blow up the White House. Good times. Dolly, the cloned sheep, was born. Charles and Di got divorced. And in the Champions League, we were up to season five, the last one with only the champions in it. Now, the reigning European champions were Juventus. They had a fresh new lineup we'll be hearing about very shortly and looked like strong favourites. Also in the competition were a famous knock knock joke answer, Ozer, who represented France. Uh, having won the first and only league title in 1996. James Horncastle, you're big on French football and the causes of French football. What do you re- recollect <laughs> of this Ozer side? Well, I mean, it's a remarkable story, James. I mean, we spoke about Nantes last week. Ozer um, came up through the very bottom of the French football pyramid all the way up to the top and ended up winning the league and the, the Coupe de France four times under under Guy Roux, um, who you know made Sir Alex Ferguson and, and Arsene Wenger's stints at Manchester United and Arsenal look uh, relatively short. The only Champions League manager whose both names uh, are sources, which is always a nice little touch. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, you, I wouldn't look out of place as a judge on MasterChef um, either. Um, but How many years was he in charge for, James? He took over in the Cretaceous period, uh, um, <laughs> and uh, I think more than forty. James. Yeah, forty-four um, years. It's just, it's just extraordinary. Imagine having the same manager for forty-four years. Well, he kind of earned the right to uh, to do whatever he wanted, I suppose, with with us there having taken them from nowhere to the Champions League Um, and uh, I suppose unfortunately for them in going into this season they lost a couple of big players like Laurent Blanc who went to uh, to Barca but I mean again this was a good year for French football in in not only was there getting to the competition but PSG reaching the the Cup Winners Cup final as well I mean we're we've touched upon it with Jules but this was a real kind of golden period for that PSG side at least when it came to getting to finals Again, just looking back at this season, James, I, d- I just found the variety in it refreshing. You know, mm. something again that we we've uh, we've lost to some extent in the in the current format. Yeah, well, within Ozer's group, indeed, you had Ajax, a beaten finalist the previous year, uh, Grasshoppers, and also Rangers, who'd finished uh, bottom of their group the previous year and finished bottom of the group again. Uh, champions of Spain were Atletico Madrid. Uh, managed, of course, by Radomir Antic. They had the competition's top scorer that season, Milinko Pantic, the Serbian. Uh, the red-haired dude asked, whatever happened to the career of top scorer Milinko Pantic? As we never heard of, heard of him after. Duncan. He ended up at Le Havre in Normandy for a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's. I had a look through the top scorers for every season of the Champions League. He has to be the most obscure top scorer uh, in Champions League history. But, it's um, Le Havre in Normandy. I believe so. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Out, it is a normative. Calling me out on my yeah. uh, normal yeah, knowledge. Is. is it? Unbelievable scenes. I thought it was a bit um, further down. He was also named, and I'm sure we'll come back to this in the future uh, of this episode, but he was named by Paul Lambert as his hardest opponent he ever faced in midfield. So Is that right? Mm-hmm. Because they played each other in the group stage, of course. Yeah. Dortmund and Atletico Madrid. Mm. I tell you what, who started that group stage on fire? It was Diego Simeone as well, who uh, who scored braces in the first two games of that uh, of that group. Representing the Premier League were Man United, who were beginning to get to grips with the competition. As Akbar Chowdhury points out, this marked the start of the three consecutive years when they faced Juventus in the Champions League, and Juve became very much the measuring stick for United. I looked back at uh, some of the press clippings from the time. Uh, I mean, Corriere della Sera of uh, of particularly the first game, and uh, the Italian impression of uh, United was withering in terms of like you know if this is the Premier League's best, then it's it's absolutely miles off our football here, and maybe you know we'll, Juventus will get a bit more of a match bit more of a game against uh who else was in that group Fenerbahce yeah so I mean they beat United 1-0 in uh in both games and were were quite comfortable in in both of them I think United particularly in the first game only had one shot and none on target so look I mean it, it ultimately was a very positive uh campaign for them uh reaching the semi-finals but Juventus as a lot of Italian clubs did at that time felt head and shoulders above everybody else it was that era when, um, you know, the Premier League team would face a team from Serie A and everyone would everyone be terrified because, you know, just the, the difference in class was insane. And obviously that season as well, United lost at home to Fenerbahce. It was the first time they'd ever lost a European home game. It was this proud record, 40 years without ever losing at home. And it kind of just shows, I mean, we mentioned this was the last season when it was just the Champions in, in a fairly quick format. And it just shows how the Champions League has changed. You know, the, the idea that even a Barcelona wouldn't lose at home is just nonsensical nowadays. Just wanted to say that United um, that year, despite their, their problems maybe to play quite the same level as Juventus, they did benefit from the relaxation of the, the rules um, after the Bosman case because they no longer had this issue with uh, resting players like they did the year before, as you recall, with Peter Schmeichel not playing, for example, in one of the key games. Their run took them all the way to the semi-finals. We'll talk about how they exited uh, soon enough. But a quick word on Milan, who were the Italian champions, Juve in the competition as the Champions League winners. Milan failing to get out of their group in ignominious circumstances. Yeah, I mean, this was the worst ever performance um, by Milan in the Champions League. And if you look at that group, they would have expected um, to, to get through it um, with Porto, Rosenberg and uh, Gothenburg um, in it. And it's quite funny, actually. I mean, they kept taking the lead in these games and then just throwing it away late. Um, they could have had qualification wrapped up, uh, I think, the... The, in the penultimate match day, but they drew against Porto. And then they went into this famous game against Rosenborg um, at San Siro, where uh, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. In You have, who was it, um, Strand tried to have a shot. It ricocheted off two or three players and fell into the path of Bratback, who uh, 
who puts uh, Rosenborg in front. Um, Christophe Dugarry, who famously Milan decided to sign after going to scout the previous UEFA Cup uh, final. Um, they chose to sign him instead of Zidane. Juventus got Zidane, and Dugarry's only kind of contribution of note for Milan was this nothing goal um, against against Rosenborg. And then Sebastiano Rossi makes a uh, a huge mistake coming for a uh, a ball over the top, which he doesn't get, and Liverpool legend. Vegard Hegem uh, manages to just get his head on it, which is all he needed to do to to secure what was a kind of famous win. I'd probably say I'm you know reaching back into the annals of Norwegian football in Europe, but this must rank as the the greatest win um, against the Milan side that had brought back Arrigo Saki after right. uh, after sacking. Uh, Oscar Washington Tabarez. Saki this is the famous you know, uh, Minesta Riscaldata, no? Exactly, you know, the reheated, reheated soup. soup. It just doesn't taste as good as fresh fresh soup. And uh, Saki, who was on the rebound after also going out in the group stages of Euro 96 with Italy, was unable to kind of recapture the magic um, that had made Milan so irresistible in Europe in the uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm. But amazingly, they only finished 11th in Serie A as well. So it wasn't mm. just uh, the Champions League where they had a hugely surprising lack of success, but also domestically. Famously defeated 6-1 at home to Juventus in that season as well. Quick point on Rosenberg. Um, they got through that group with a goal difference of minus four, which was a Champions League record that stood for a long time um, <laughs> until 2013-14, which is pretty impressive to Who's do. Who's beaten it? Duncan. Uh, about three or four teams have beaten it, but Galatasaray currently have the record. They did it with minus six in 2013-14. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Being on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Let's talk about Borussia Dortmund, Rafa. Uh, the team managed then by Otmar Hitzfeld. They'd won back-to-back titles in the Bundesliga. Uh, and they were kind of stuffed full of Germans who'd been plying their trade in Syria. Was that a kind of conscious policy of theirs, to import Germans from Syria? Not so much. I think it was just more of a reflection of the financial ability that they suddenly had. They had this good run uh, in the Champions League the year before. They um, were beneficiaries of a lot of money from private television or commercial television uh, in UEFA Cup in years before. They had actually made the UEFA Cup final in '93, losing against Juventus. Um, and all that money, they thought, will reinvest in tried and tested stars. And a lot of these players, like Merler, like Summer, like uh, Stefan Reuter, didn't really enjoy, for, for, for various reasons, playing in Italy uh, that much. So they were happy to come back. And then they even managed to pick up the likes of Julio Cesar and Paolo Sosa from Juventus. So they had a really strong, experienced side, uh, full of big characters. Uh, so many full big characters, in fact, that Opmar Hitzfeld had a really hard time dealing with them uh, the, there was a lot of strife and a lot of problems behind the scenes and um, if they hadn't won this um, the whole thing might have might have exploded a little bit earlier but uh, the quality was was undeniable I think of this Dortmund team 
Matthias Sammer, who just won the Euros uh, with Germany the previous summer, who's the only man to play in both that final at Wembley and then the Champions League final in Munich and, and won the Ballon d'Or after a particularly miserable spell that he'd uh, had at Inter. That's right, James. He did not um, enjoy playing Inter at all. Um, I think was basically feeling as if he was in a foreign country um, playing, playing in Italy and uh, was, was very happy to, to come back to Dortmund. And bizarrely, he was not the captain. Michel Zorc was the captain, even though he was in his t- twilight of his career uh, at the time, which was another, I think, bone of contention or issue where there was a lot of infighting and, and mm. sort of difficult dressing room dynamics at the time. Sammer went on to manage Dortmund and, and won the title with them in 2002. What's he doing now? So he's gone back to Dortmund as a advisor to the board of directors, um, having come back from the cold, the cold being um, in a similar role as sporting director at Bayern Munich, where he was very vocal and one of the, the people who really took on Dortmund all the time, uh, verbally and, and Klopp. And there was a lot of bad blood, but it's all been forgiven and now he's back. Uh, with Dortmund, um, helping them with some kind of strategic things, but also looking at prospective transfer dealings. Um, he was, for example, um, watching Erling Haaland uh, play a few games in Austria. Also famously in that Borussia Dortmund side, and probably the first name that a lot of people in the UK will mention when they think about that final is Paul Lambert, who puts in the cross for the first of the, for the, the Riedler goals. How big a figure was he for Dortmund in central midfield there? He was a big figure, perhaps not the most celebrated of, of players because they did have the likes of Müller, you know, World Cup winner, Paulo Sosa, who was uh, wonderful on the ball. Summer playing as a sweeper, but often playing in midfield from that position. Lambert was the guy that would do a lot of the invisible, the, the, the less glamorous, the dirty stuff, the, the water carrier role. But um, his endeavour, his you know commitment, the way he played the game, I think made him a huge favourite at Dortmund where there's always a big appreciation for uh, work ethic, you know, being uh, very much a, a working class club, at least um, in terms of the industrial heritage at Dortmund. So I think he fit in very well with his attitude, but I would say he was slightly overshadowed by more technically gifted players around him. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about just having a, a British player in the final in 97 was seen as this kind of huge occasion. It's like, wow, look, there's someone who's actually played in Scotland or England in the uh, Champions League final. It was uh, extraordinary. Are we going to touch on anything to do with United in the knockout stages? Let's some... do it now, Duncan, because there were yep. two meetings between Dortmund and Man United and uh, both of them ended in 1-0 wins for uh, the German side. Treschok, the hero in the first, Lars Ricken with the goal at Old Trafford and there's some valiant defending from Dortmund, in particular Jürgen Kohler. Kohler was outstanding. It was the game that made him the bona fide fußball got in law. Uh, in the annals of, of Dortmund and, and perhaps German history as well, clearing two balls on the line at uh, Old Trafford. Um, but both goals for Dortmund, bizarrely, uh, deflected by Pallister, which uh, made him the anti Fußballgott, I guess. Dortmund won all five of their games in the knockouts, which is relatively rare. Um, but from a United point of view, obviously they'd beaten Porto 4-0 in the quarterfinal first leg, including a David May Champions League goal, which is as rare as a, a rarer thing as you can get. Um, and then, yeah, I think United were a little bit unlucky in the semis. They went away to Dortmund. Nicky Butt hit the post. Cantona was good, but he kind of lost the ball, which led to Dortmund's goal. And um, obviously after the second leg, 
that was the day, the day after the second leg was when he told Alex Ferguson he wanted to retire as a player at the, at the age of 30. So it was quite a pivotal kind of tie, I think, this. That wasn't the only pivotal thing that happened after that second leg because after Lars Ricken's goal, Sir Alex Ferguson decided he had to start wearing glasses. Uh, he had a go at uh, Peter Schmeichel at half-time, convinced that he, his error had been behind Lars Ricken's uh, scoring with that shot and then he said, no, there was a deflections relicsial thing and he said in his autobiography, I decided then and there I needed glasses. You can't be wrong at half time. Well, if we're talking about things that happened after the second leg at Old Trafford, um, I was actually in Manchester that night and I was uh, at a nightclub called the Hacienda, which was just about still going. It was two months before it closed. And there was a kind of unsigned bands night called Stone Love. And my lasting memory of it is about... 11 o'clock, stood in the queue to get in. Loads of Dortmund fans in fluoro yellow scarves turned up and all the bouncers were like, lads, you can come in, but take the scarves off because it's, it's not advisable. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, cut to about, I don't know, half 12 and the whole place just kicked off because they hadn't taken off the scarves and there was a bit of bad blood. But I've got really kind of clear memories of, of that night and, and that Champions League semi. I really thought that was going in another direction. When you said about there being a new bands night, I assumed that that was going to be the day that you saw... No. I mean, I, from from memory, every band that played there was awful, so maybe right. it was good, <laughs> but I don't think so. OK. Excellent. Well, that was Man United. In the other semi-final, it was all about a young French player who Juventus had just signed after Milan passed him up. At Bordeaux, the player being, of course, Zinedine Zidane, Juventus facing uh, Ajax again, the team who they'd beaten in the Champions League final only the summer before. How good was Zidane in the second leg, James? Was this the performance of the, the entire campaign? Well, I think it was. it's fair to say that it was a performance um, Juventus had been waiting to see from Zinedine Zidane. <laughs> While he'd got better through the winter and the spring, uh, there is always this lore at Juventus that you know it took Platini six months um, before we saw uh, the best of him. And this was Zidane's first season, um, and he was magnificent um, in this game. You know, it's 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 one of the stories of that or themes of that year at Juventus was that they had so much attacking talent even after selling the likes of Gianluca Vialli and Fabrizio Ravinelli. You know, they brought in uh, Alan Boxic, the human can opener, um, as uh, he was apparently known, just just reading some of the clippings. That, uh, that was a nickname that had eluded me. I always thought Cardboard Boxic was, was a better one. And he actually came up pretty big in some of the knockout games as well. This was the story of, I suppose, the turn of the year at Juventus where... Zidane in that game was majestic. Um, and if you go and look at the supercut on uh, on YouTube, which just sees him jinking past players and uh, and finding space where there was none, um, you also kind of have to tip your hat at the number of Italians in that Juventus side who, I wouldn't say were the glamorous names in it. You're talking Michele Padovano, uh, um, Sergio Mark Porini, Giuliano. Uh, Mark Giuliano. Nicola Amoruso, um, <laughs> all of these kind of players who made big contributions that season. So it wasn't just about the Hall of Famers, I suppose, that we now look back on as, 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 as Del Piero, who had scored in the Club World Cup final against River Plate. 
Uh, I think he'd also scored in that the two legs where they beat PSG 9-2 in the European Super Cup, beating them 6-1 in Paris, um, which was which was pretty damn special. And this one, because you know, ultimately, you think of those World Cup winners from two years later, you know, Zidane and Didier Deschamps. Um, Deschamps who'd won the European Cup with Marseille, um, as had Boxage. But in actual fact, one of the real kind of uh, strengths of this side was just these kind of resilient, battle-hardened Italians who then ended up Juventus having been kind of, you know, gifted nothing really throughout their careers and, and, and were just you know, so hungry to have made it and have the opportunity to play in games like this. I think that was one of the real kind of defining qualities of this, of this Juventus team. Well, through they went to the final after the semifinals with Ajax and on the 28th of May in Munich, they faced off with Borussia Dortmund. the two teams that met uh, what four years previously in the UEFA Cup final when Juve uh, came up with one of their biggest performances ever in, in Europe a 6-1 victory on aggregate it was uh, over two legs in those days the UEFA Cup final with Roberto Badger putting in probably his best ever performance for the old lady now we mentioned the fact that Dortmund in the meanwhile had picked up a whole bunch of Juventus players yeah, and so much so that um, in the in the papers in Italy, in the lead up to the game, they drew the comparison with uh, the annual friendly that Juventus play um, in in preseason at Villa Perosa, which is where the Agnelli family uh, is from, between Juventus A and Juventus B, um, and this was very much seen as a as a rerun of that with the. The Juve A side being the one that had uh, romped through this competition, it was very much seen as Juventus's game to lose. But lose it they did, Rafa. Del Piero didn't start, Zidane was tightly marked and Dortmund blew the old lady away. I, I don't know if they did. I think Juventus had a lot of chances, uh, James, and probably had more possession, had more of the game in midfield. But Dortmund scored from, from two set pieces, having uh, trained them, having also figured out that Peruzzi, in the words of uh, Obmar Hitzfeld, the Dortmund coach, was very reluctant to come off his line. And Karl-Heinz Lieder scored with, uh, scored with two headers. And uh, that, of course, tilted the balance of the game. Then Juventus had to chase. And uh, the second half kind of played out as it often does, I think, when one team chases and then the other team has a chance to deliver the sucker, sucker punch, punch, as it were. And deliver they mm. did. Riedler from Paul Lambert's cross to make it 1-0, then almost immediately a second with the header from the corner. Riedler had woken up the night before at 3.30, sweating and telling his roommate, uh, Martin Kreder, he just dreamt about scoring two goals against Juventus the next day. Extraordinary. Rafa is right when he says that um, Juventus had lots of chances. I mean, they felt they should have had a penalty very early on when Vladimir Jugovic is, is, is brought down in the, in the area. Never um, a pen, come on. <laughs> well, the, the, it's, it's fascinating rereading the reaction in Italy afterwards in that they thought that um, Italian football had lost its power within UEFA 
because Matabeza, who was the vice president of UEFA at the time, he was no longer the president of the Italian Football Federation, so he no longer had credibility. There were some bad decisions in the Schalke Inter final in the UEFA Cup. Um, they felt that there were bad decisions in this game, where, again, I think Vieri had a goal disallowed um, for, for, for handball, handball mm. and, uh, and they felt that that should have stood, um, or could have stood. They'd seen them given. And uh, there was one of the great... Uh, almost forgotten final goals as well uh, when yeah, Del Piero came on and backheeled uh, that cross from Alan Boxic. Boxic resiste, mette in mezzo, Del Piero tocco, e c'è il gol! Gol fantastico di Del Piero! Una magia proprio lui al diciottesimo, 2-1! Yeah, it was magnificent that and it made it 2-1 only for Borussia Dortmund to swiftly re-establish a two-goal margin through Lars Ricken. Rafa, Josh Turnbull wants to know what happened to Lars Ricken. He was the Mario Goetze of his day. In, in terms of scoring a goal in the final and perhaps not quite living up to his promise in years after, that, that may be true. Um, he had a few injuries. Um, ultimately, he never really became a, uh, a proper German international. Perhaps also slightly ill-advised with some of the TV ads he did. He did one famously for Nike, I think, in '98, where he was saying, oh, I'm looking at football and I see all these men in pinstripe suits. They don't love the game as much as I do and so on. <laughs> uh, which all felt a bit strange. But he's now back at Dortmund being the, um, the youth team coach, so the second team okay. coach. What was remarkable about this goal, of course, was that it happened with his first touch of the game. He'd come on, and only 16 seconds later, uh, there's the ball through from Andres Muller and reluctancy's Angelo Peruzzi stands and watches as Rickon basically lobs him from, what, about 20 yards? Unbelievable goal. Um, according to Rickon, it's the sort of shot that one time out of 10 maybe goes in. And again, he, like Hitzfeld, referenced... Um, Peruzzi's positional play and had said that it was already in his mind before uh, he'd come on that Peruzzi was always standing too far uh, outside of his goal uh, during play which I don't know how that syncs up with Hitzfeld's assumption that he never comes out but um, anyway if we chalk it up Peruzzi also lobbed by Francesco Totti in that 5-1 derby win that Roma had what a couple of years, couple of years later as well. So, yeah, it's, I think yeah. it certainly was a, a trait of uh, of Peruzzi's game, which um, uh, Ricken did wonderfully to exploit. Killed the game. Yeah, killed the game. And and we should also mention Stefan Klaus, who'd had a fantastic game um, in the final, but more so even at Old Trafford in the semi final. The Dortmund keeper, who then went on, of course, to play for for Rangers for a long time. So I think that was. Perhaps the biggest difference between Juve A and Juve B <laughs> that night, <laughs> Dortmund actually had a keeper. Post the final, Borussia Dortmund went on to win the Intercontinental Cup, becoming world champions, beating Brazilian side Cruzeiro 2-0 in Tokyo. That win, though, was supervised by Nevio Scala, the former Parma manager, because it's felt it moved upstairs to the position of sporting director. Scala is just still being mentioned as the worst Dortmund coach in recent history. Um, it, it all fell completely apart uh, under him. But just one more point to make, the symbolic importance of Dortmund not just winning their first ever European Cup, but winning it in Munich 
where Bayern had toiled, you know, so so fruitlessly for over 20 years at that point. Bayern hadn't won the European Cup since 1976. It was their big obsession. And here come Dortmund, these upstarts, and win it in Munich. It was uh, it was a huge thing and made it all the more sweeter for, for Dortmund that night. Rafa, within, what, eight years of this Champions League victory, Borussia Dortmund were on the verge of bankruptcy. What brought about that sudden precipitous fall? They basically did a Leeds United, James. They um, made a lot of money from an IPO, but then they spent all that money uh, that they'd made on the stock market on players. And when they missed the Champions League a couple of times, there was nothing to fall back upon and the whole house came crashing down. I mean, they had unbelievably big contracts for everyone. They were fighting with Bayern for players and sometimes players would go to them rather than to Bayern. Sebastian Kehl was an example. I think Jörg Heinrich as well. Uh, and they couldn't ultimately couldn't sustain it and very nearly uh, went bust. But that season also finished with another famous Italian-German clash uh, in the UEFA Cup, as the Europa League used to be known, uh, when uh, Inter took on Schalke in a two-legged final, the last two-legged final in this competition, and Roy Hodgson made Javier Zanetti lose his cool. <laughs> Yeah, the only time that we've ever seen um, that famous Javier Zanetti haircut kind of ruffled and, uh, you know, someone who is uh, a real sort of uh, bastion of Corinthian uh, and and kind of good sporting behaviour um just absolutely lose his mind um, with, uh, with, with Roy Hodgson. Again, in a final that an Italian team expected to win um, against... Uh, Schalke's Eurofighters. Is that right? Uh, is that right, Raf? Yeah, yeah, that was their nickname. It went to penalties. And who was the hero? Jens Lehmann, who was in goal for Schalke that night, saved Zamorano's penalty. Aaron Winter put his wide, and Schalke were UEFA Cup champions. As for Javier Zanetti and why he got so upset, visibly swearing, I know, at Hodgson uh, as he was being uh, called off the field. Hodgson Why did you sell him. Roberto Carlos? Why? <laughs> this is this is one of the two kind of major charges that are laid at Hodgson's door by Inter fans. One, the sale of Roberto Carlos, and, and secondly, having taken uh, Javier Zanetti off just before the penalty kicks so that he could send on Nicola Berti, who Hodgson presumably felt was going to be slightly more reliable from the spot. By the way, on the bench for Schalke that night, one David Wagner. Indeed. And uh, Hoop Stevens um, pulling off this win again. It wasn't perhaps the most... Hoop, um, there it is. Yeah, uh, <laughs> most glamorous of Hoop performances, dreams. but they, they, they did enough. Um, Zamorano only scored the, uh, the winner or the equaliser of the two ties in the 84th minute. So Schalke had defended like, very, very valiantly. Talking earlier about a random... Uh, top scorers in, in mm. the Champions League, in the UEFA Cup, and you think of the array of attacking talent that there was not only at Inter but in some of the other teams in that competition I think I'm right in saying that Maurizio Gantz was the top scorer for uh, for the Nerazzurri and in that competition as a whole which on the back of Barcelona beating PSG in the Cup Winners Cup final with a penalty from Ronaldo that's when we saw Inter say you know what thanks Gantz but we're going to sign O Phenomeno <laughs> Very nice. All right, well, that was the UEFA Cup, and that was what happened in the 96-97 season 
in Europe. But what if, what if it didn't? Plutonium, tick. Self-lacing sneakers, tick. Copy of a sports almanac from a futuristic sounding date that we've actually already now passed, tickaroo. Sounds like we're ready to time stream tinker again. And after touching on it way back at the start of today's show, let's return to Euro 1996 and, for English fans, a pivotal moment. Paul Gascoigne in the semi-final against Germany and that wide open goal. Trying to get Shearer on the far side, onto the body! But what if, what if Gaza didn't miss that day? What if he'd scored against Germany at Euro 96 and England had won that match? Duncan, what would reality look like? Well, very different. Um, as Rafa pointed out this week on our WhatsApp chat, uh, Christian Zieger interviewed a few months ago, pointed out that if Gascoigne had uh, just run a bit faster and straighter, he could have probably easily reached that ball and, and put it in. Um, but in our reality, he does so. Golden goal through to the uh, the final against the Czech so Republic. So he just runs straighter? Yeah, just runs like a like a hare, a greyhound race. Right. I think Zieger's point was that he hadn't run directly towards the goal. Had he just been a little bit more focused? Well, he kind of ambles a little bit, and he also sort of slightly curves his run, but, you know. Mm. On such decisions are entire realities based. Yes. So we're now in the, the Euro 96 final, and it's, well, as we all know in this alternate reality, it's now known as the Gascoigne final to go up there with the Matthews final. He scores one, he assists Shearer as England win their first trophy since 1966, ending 30 years of hurt. But Gascoigne being Gascoigne... He also manages to quite badly injure Karol Poborski during the game, um, which th- then opens up two very different timelines because Alex Ferguson was just about to sign Poborski for Manchester United, but inspired by the brilliance of Gascoigne and the violence a little bit, he rectifies the situation when Gascoigne chose Spurs over United back in the, in the late 80s um, and signs Gascoigne as a sort of you know swan song of his career. Let's see what I can finally get out of Gaza at Old Trafford. So 1996-97 starts with Paul Gascoigne uh, at Old Trafford for Manchester United. Meanwhile, in the international scene, the FA, because England are now Euro champions, they've uh, done a massive U-turn on their decision to get rid of uh, or not offer Terry Venables a new contract. Uh, and they give him a new contract and, and sort of say to Hoddle, sorry, your, your time will come. So, so Terry Venables... In is another life. Ring. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So back to the domestic game, 96-97 starts with Gascoigne in superb form. He assists as many goals in August, four, as Butt, Keane and Skulls do all season in real life. So already Gascoigne is having a huge effect. But guess what? It's Gascoigne. It doesn't work out. Later on that season, by the autumn, his form slipping, his behaviour's going a bit awry and United are really starting to fade. Now what this does is it means that Keegan at Newcastle um, decides not to resign in January because Newcastle are well in the title race at this point. United are really looking like they're in trouble. And what happens at the end of the season? Newcastle pip Liverpool United to the league title. So Keegan is now the uh, manager of the league champions, Newcastle United. But this is when it gets particularly bad because Paul Gascoigne, a proud Geordie, is then seen celebrating the league title with Shearer and Keegan 
Um, he's now known as Agent Tyneside, um, a man who's gone to United and, and sort of derailed. And Fergie abandons his experiment with the class of 92. He's, he's lost faith with all his philosophies. Uh, he spends big, but unsuccessfully in 97, 98, 99. But his club are slowly eclipsed by Arsenal, Liverpool and Newcastle, who become the big three. So in the long run, for many people, it was actually a blessing that Paul Gascoigne missed that goal. For Manchester United fans, I think I don't think I'm exaggerating to say their entire uh, hegemony in the Premier League is based on Gascoigne missing that chance. All right, I have one more question then. Who who does the Pizza Hut advert then? There isn't one. No, Pizza Hut just go for a standard advertising campaign in uh, the 96-97 season. Well, no, Gazza would presumably be involved now if he'd scored the winning goal. Um, they would they would make an advert around Gazza. Yeah, or no, right. maybe. Maybe they did it around the golden goal. Maybe Gazza slides in and on the end of his foot is a pizza box and inside is a piping hot pizza hut pizza. Well, I, I mean, it could be like one of those stories that you used to get, James, from him and Jimmy Five Bellies about the uh, the pies. At, yes. Um, no. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then, Rafa. Briefly, what do you make of that? I'm just happy things turned out the way they did. I'm, I'm wondering if, if Bertie Fawkes would have been perhaps dismissed a little bit earlier and then Germany might have had a decent chance of winning the World Cup in 1998. Interesting but, um, point. I, I guess we'll under, never know. Under, yeah, I, I don't know under whom necessarily. I um, don't know who would have taken over in 1996 after Bertie. Hmm. Maybe Franz Beckenbauer would have come back. Perhaps. All right then. Well, many thanks for that exploration of alternate possibilities, Duncan. Up next, we're going to have the dramatic conclusion of today's show with the quiz quiz part two everyone and it's a big welcome back to jack lang hi james hi jack and hello emma saunders hello james hello emma with your perfect score in the specialist knowledge round how good's your general knowledge well let's hope it matches my specialist knowledge hey yeah well it couldn't beat it i guess jack you're a point behind nervous uh I mean, I could pretend to be, but now I'm just going to see what happens. I like it. Emma goes first. General knowledge questions start with question one. By how many points are Liverpool currently leading the Premier League? Oh, God. Um, 25. Is correct. Question two. Who is the next team in this sequence? QPR. Norwich, Hull, Huddersfield, Fulham, and who? Say it again, QPR. QPR, Norwich, Hull, Huddersfield, Fulham, and who? Aston Villa. It's correct. They're the last six championship playoff final winners. Question three. What have these players got in common? Emmanuel Adebayor, Sol Campbell, William Gallas, David Bentley and Pat Jennings. Manuel Adebayor, William Gass. Both both of them are have played for both North London sides, Spurs and Arsenal. Absolutely correct. Question four then: Four stadia in Britain have hosted the Champions League or European Cup final. Which four stadiums are they? Old Trafford, Wembley, obviously. Uh, is Elland Road one of them? 
No, afraid not. Should I give you the four? Go on. Wembley, Hampden Park, Millennium Stadium in Cardiff and Old Trafford. Britain, the key word. Mm. Question five then, Emma. The 2026 World Cup is scheduled to be hosted across three countries. But which three countries are they? Um, isn't it America, Canada and Mexico? It is. So at the end of your general knowledge round, Emma, you have scored four out of five on your general knowledge and a grand total of nine out of ten, which is the best score yet we've had in the Intertotally Cup. Outstanding. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with that. And uh, Jack Lang, I imagine you are nervous now. Quaking in my boots. <laughs> right. Because, of course, now, Jack, you need a perfect round in the general knowledge questions. Let's see. Question one. Bayern Munich play in the Allianz Germany, but who plays in the Allianz France? Uh, nice. Is correct. What have these players got in common? Question two. Andrea Pirlo, Ronaldo... Hernan Crespo, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Roberto Baggio and Mario Balotelli. They've all played for both Milan clubs. That is correct. Question three. Who is currently the youngest ever player to make a Premier League appearance? Harvey Elliott. Is correct. Jack, you're on for the five out of five that will take you to the tiebreaker, but you need two more Correct answers. Here's question four. What is the next team in this sequence? Swansea, Manchester City, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United, Manchester City, Manchester City and... Manchester City again. Is correct. The last eight League Cup winners, which means it's all down to this question to bring a tiebreaker. Question five then. In 2018-19, which three players were joint Premier League top scorers? Um, 18-19. That's correct. Uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah. It's correct. FPL King Mo Salah. Jack, that means you've moved level with Emma. Emma Saunders, how do you feel? I thought I'd got the job done. Um, but what happens now? Are we into a tiebreaker? I'm afraid you are. Actually, I'm excited to say that you are because you will both answer the following question. And whoever gets the answer either spot on or the nearest will be taking a place in the quarterfinals. Wow. OK, uh, I'm going to ask Emma first and then come to you, Jack, for your answer to the following question. The highest ever attendance for a World Cup final was in 1986 when West Germany faced Argentina in the Azteca Stadium in Mexico City. But how many people are reported to have been there? Emma? Uh, I will go 90,000. 90,000 people. Jack? Well, I'm going to do that horrible thing of saying 90,001. It's kind of an Arsenal Luis Suarez approach. And this time it works, Jack. This time it's successful because the actual answer was significantly higher than either of you said. It was actually 114,600 people. But of course, by going one higher than Emma, you sly dog, you've snatched that place in the quarterfinals. Oh, my word. Let's hear the raw emotion in your voice. Wow. I can barely contain myself. Sorry, sorry to win it that way, Emma. That, that feels very cheap. 
I think James summed it up. You sly, sly dog. <laughs> Emma, I, that was extraordinary for you to go out of the competition after posting the highest score we'd had to this point, nine out of ten. That's that's bitter. It was very reminiscent of that Watford 2014-15 season. You know, I gave it all I've got, but much like Bournemouth, I've been pipped. So well done, Jack, for doing a Bournemouth, I suppose, is all that's left to say. Right. Very sporting of you. Jack, well done for doing a Bournemouth. Yeah, that's going straight to the top of my CV. Brilliant. Well, who knows what further triumphs await you as you enter the quarterfinals. For now, many thanks to both of you for taking part and we'll speak to you soon. James, of course, you are through and due to be facing ice-cold Jack Lang in the quarterfinals. How do you feel? Well, I talked a big game earlier on uh, mm. and uh, having followed that uh, that epic duel, um, I must say uh, my, my confidence has been shaken uh, right. a little bit. Either one of those opponents, I think, they, they sound formidable. Got to say, commiserations to, to Emma to post 9 out of 10 and still get knocked out. When you look at the calibre of some of the people who've gone through, I mean, that's just got a, that's heartbreaking. Oh, if really you look at the calibre of some people who haven't gone through. Even. Well, that's also true. <laughs> that's also true. Uh, well, we'll have another round of the Intertotally, of course, in our next show, Sunday night, Monday morning, when Karl Anker will be up against Sasha Gurionov. I don't know if I can call that, but we'll find out what happens in the next edition of the Totally Football Show, in which there'll also be Michael Cox, and Matt Davis-Adams and uh, Daniel Storey looking back at some key moment of the uh, Premier League uh, season's past. That's it for today's show, though. So many, many thanks to everybody for being with us. James Horncastle. Pleasure. Duncan Alexander. Thank you. And Raphael Honigstein. Cheers. And you, listener, do hope you have a splendid weekend. We'll catch up with you Sunday night, Monday morning. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.